0: to turn your Bibles, okay, this could be a little confusing, we're in Titus, but we're going to be in Deuteronomy, if that makes any sense to you. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where well, we're talking about reformation of uh, family, of church, of the world for that matter, and we're focusing in this week, last week, and uh, next week or two um, <clears throat> to come on, on families, and specifically because in Titus chapter uh, 1, Paul, writing to Titus, who is pastoring or kind of providing leadership on the island of Crete, to the Cretans, and uh, he is establishing some leadership, dealing with some needs in the body, and uh, Paul's telling him, look, put, put qualified leaders over the congregation and um, to lead them, and here's what the congregation is supposed to look like, and here's what believers, followers of Jesus should look like. And it is of utmost importance that if the followers of Jesus should look like that, that their leadership has to emulate that and kind of give, help them see what that looks like lived out. So make sure that you have leaders that live according to God's word. So in Titus chapter 1, he gives them a series of explanations of what that looks like. He says, if anybody's above reproach, husband of one wife, and if his children are believers... Uh, do not, and, and not open to the charge of debauchery. We talked last week about how that really means um, wasteful living, kind of just throwing their lives away. Um, they're not living recklessly or wastefully. Uh, and then he says, or the charge of insubordination. In other words, they're, they're unwilling to yield and to submit They're rebellious to their parents. If they're rebellious as kids, they're going to grow up to be rebellious, And so you have to deal with that when they're younger in those formative years. We're going to talk about corrective and other kinds of discipline next week a little more in in detail. How do we get kids that don't look like this? In other words, when you look at this, you kind of just really chew on this. What, What we find is what he's saying is you don't want your kids to be out of control, consumers, worldly, ungodly, unwilling to submit and live under authority, doing whatever they want for whatever they want to do and they just, they're just they self-absorbed, narcissistic consumers, which is what we as a society are spectacular at producing, right? Kids that look just like that. Well, how do we have kids that look different? You know what one of the most evangelistic things you could do is raise your kids to be different than the world? Not to raise your kids to be like the world, to fit into the world, but one of the greatest things evangelistically is, is when people go, you know, there's something different about your kids, and you can step into that and say, you know, yeah, it's because I'm, I'm really a good parent, And I'm smarter than you, and I have better kids than you, and have better DNA than you, and we have better, you know. But but to say, you know what, it's honestly by God's grace. I mean, my kids, listen, they have as many issues as, but we are diligently, prayerfully, regularly before the Lord and involved in their lives and working through these things so that my kids um, live for Jesus, that they know their need for Jesus, and that is displayed in the way that they live their life. That would be the win for me. But here's the question for you. When you think about your life, you think about all of the different concerns and challenges for today, things you're worried about, things you're consumed in, what you're busy about. Understand this. Understand this. A hundred years from now, a hundred years from now, for everybody in this room, the only thing that is going to matter in your life is your personal relationship with God. Nothing else is going to matter. Well, I got taxes coming up, and I got got to you know pay the bills, and I got this and that. I'm working on this, and I'm dealing with that this issue and that challenge, and this sickness and that um this obstacle and this persecution and this whatever and my whatever the issue is that you would say, man, I'm really concerned, with this This is really strong. I'm telling you, a hundred years from now, that will not matter. The only thing that's going to matter is your relationship with God, your personal relationship with God. connect the dots you're, you're not going to be here on this earth probably 100 years from now and so nothing that you worry about today is really going to matter let's think about that in, in regards to our children 100 years from now the only thing that's going to matter about our kids is their relationship with god their gpa is not going to matter their uh, scholarships they get to college are not going to matter what college they went to is not going to matter their degree the job they landed straight out of school. That, that's not going to matter. Their accomplishments, their achievements, whatever. The only thing that's going to matter is their soul and their relationship with the God who created them. It's the only thing that's going to matter. You realize that? And so we have to understand, we have limited time. We talked last week about how we have exactly 936 weeks in our kids' lives. This is uh, 936 marbles. And each one of them represents... One of the weeks that we have in our kids' life before they're 18, before they're basically, according to our culture, adults, which I would argue we should declare earlier than 18. We'll talk about that next week. I think, I think adulthood begins, in a Jewish perspective, would be closer to 12. Actually, we'll talk about that this, this week a little bit. we have time. But 936 weeks, the clock's ticking, and you have a limited amount of time. You know, the thing is, I don't know what kind of... You, some of you are planners. You're really good about... Um, you know, mapping it all out, whatever. Um, there's nothing that gets me focused like a deadline. Okay, there's nothing that gets me focused like knowing I have limited time. I have a limited amount of time left to do whatever it is that. And once I realize, oh, the clock's ticking. I really, the clock is going here, and I've got a limited amount of time to do whatever it is I need to do. It's something about that that just gets me a little more serious. And I imagine you might be like that too, one way or another. Planners or non-planners, procrastinators or planners, one way or another, there's still a clock, is there not? There's still a deadline, there's still a limited amount of time, and that's the reality of this 936 weeks. The clock is ticking, and you have a short span of time to pack into your kids' lives the things that they're going to need for the journey ahead. You only have a short amount of time. And so understanding that, look at this next slide, and I want you to say, well, you know, yeah, that's your job, that's the pastor's job, and the church's job, and, um, that's the issue. Well, well, this slide illustrates for you, if you look at the orange dots, the average church only has 40 hours in a given year to influence a life. 40 hours in a given year to influence somebody's life. Now, I know some of you guys are good at math. You're thinking, well, there's um, how many weeks in a year? Okay. 52 weeks in a year? 40? That's 12 weeks? That nobody's in church. Yeah, that you believe it or not. Do you know that the average person, if they come to church once or twice in a month, they consider themselves an active member of um, of that church. And so, uh, part of that's that some of you guys have lots of different issues and challenges. You got work you're juggling, family needs, sickness, different things. Understandable. Some of us are just lazy. I don't know that it'd be anybody in this room. Clearly, um, uh, there'll be more people in church this year, this summer, uh, probably than in the past regionally because. The lake's drained, and so there's a lot of less people. It could, be, it could be efficient, and so um, that would probably help. I didn't think about it. I thought that's going to be bad for Wataga, but I didn't even think until this moment. I never It's an epiphanal thought it's going to be good for churches, okay? A lot less, more men in church this summer than ever before in this area. But nonetheless, you have 40 hours in a given year to influence somebody's life. The church does, 40 hours. Let's look at parents. Parents have 3,000 hours per year. To influence a life three thousand hours now let me apologize on behalf of churches because many of you have um, grown up in and been in churches that have wrongly and falsely communicated to you that they have spectacular programs set up that will disciple and pour into your children in those 40 hours a year everything they need for life and godliness They'll give them all the instruction and the formative teaching and the things that they need to walk with Jesus for a lifetime. And so you have, many of you have grown up in the mentality and thought about, and you saw this with your parents maybe, that again, this is only really the last 50 to 75 years this has been a reality. Before that, for the previous uh, 2,000 years of Christianity, this has not been true. But nonetheless, the last 75, 80 years, the thought was if you are a good dad, if you provide for your family and you take them to church, And according to these numbers, there's a little more to it than that, isn't there? There's a little more to it. And so how are we doing, as the body of Christ, equipping parents to pour into their lives? And for that matter, is there a plan in the Bible? Again, we want to have a biblical worldview. Does the Bible actually speak to education and discipleship of children? Does it even inform us and give us any idea of what we're supposed to do with kids and got great news for you. Yes, it does. The word of God speaks clearly to that and that's where I want to jump to Deuteronomy because God has has given us in Deuteronomy chapter six, a beautiful plan for what this looks like and how this is to be fleshed out. Let me give you some background. There was a nation there was a nation of people who lived for hundreds of years under oppression and persecution. They were They were basically turned into slaves. And as that nation grew uh, in their population, they continued to be oppressed and to be uh, persecuted. And God raised up a leader to help them. He raised up a leader who would uh, help them rebuild their sense of identity as the people of God, of their their faith in God. he led them through uh, what ended up to be decades of challenges and obstacles, hundreds of miles of of journeying and traveling as a huge, giant, nomadic people working through different things God provided for them and He used this leader to lead them and to guide them and to direct them. And one day, in the camps of this nation of people, this nomadic group of people, spreading through the tents and through the different places, the, the, the word began to spread that their fearless leader, who has led them for decade after decade after decade... Is going to step aside and he's going to pass the reins to somebody else who's going to lead them for the next part of the journey. And you understand, about, they were probably very frightened because the next part of the journey was going to be a challenge and, and they were not sure what was going to happen. And as he gathered the people together to give them a farewell speech, he began to remind them of all the things that God had done. Remember when God delivered you from slavery? Remember when God provided for you water in the desert. Remember how God provided for you food week after week, day after day after day, where there was no food, God supernaturally provided you food. Remember how God was able to sustain your clothing for 40 years in the wilderness. Remember how God has been faithful and he's delivered us from slavery and he's delivered us from oppression and persecution and provided for us and led us to this moment remember all those things that's what he said now a lot of people probably tuning out because they're thinking well we've heard this all before he's talked about this a bunch of times yeah god did this god did that god did this it all sounded familiar reminded them of god's faithfulness to them the laws that he had called them to live by but his message shifted and it began to share some new things that he had never said before He gave them some instruction for how they are to go into this new land that he's going to provide for them. In fact, he said this land is going to be so good, you're going to have wells that you're not going to have to even dig. There's going to be, this is a land flowing with milk and with honey. This is a land that's going to have an abundance for you, and all you have to do is, is, is inherit it. You just need to walk into it, step into it, and I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to provide it for you. But I want you to be really careful that you don't begin to worship false gods or to get distracted by the prosperity and the ease of life you're about to have in some ways. Don't let that draw your hearts away from me, the one true God who loves you. And so he gives them what the Jews to this very day recite in the morning and at night every day. It's called the Shema. The Shema. It's the Hebrew Word for the beginning of this verse, the Shema. It means, Hear O Israel. So here are the words that he says to them. In fact, let me begin in, this is chapter six. Let's begin in verse one. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may, that you may do well in the land to which you're going to going over to possess it that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's sons by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and with honey. Verse 4, this is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words which I have commanded you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. That's a little box, uh, the phylacteries that you might see. Hasidic Jews will have a little box on their forehead and on their hand and then leather wrapped around their, their arms, binding it to their arms. They literally did this often when they would pray. Bind them as a sign in your hand, frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers and to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Is the Lord your God? You shall fear fear Him and you shall serve by His name. You shall swear, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. God had given them, in those words, a plan formatively as a nation that to this day faithful Jewish families follow. And it's to teach their kids the Shema. They memorize. the first thing they learn. First verse in the Bible, first thing they memorize is the Shema. And they hold it with them for the rest of their life. to, To... Anchor them to the reality that the Lord, your God, hero Israel, the Lord, our God, we're part of a community and we have a God and he is, he has a name. Notice in your Bibles, there's a capital O, capital R, capital D behind the L. You notice that? It's saying that that's the divine name of God. That's the personal divine name of God. Some people would would pronounce that, translate that. Yahweh, we don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but it's God's personal specific name. It's not Hey, God. Generally speaking, is your God. it's God, the God of the Bible, the I am that I am, who revealed Himself to Moses, who went to Pharaoh and told Pharaoh, "I am that I am," says to let my people go. That God is our God. He is one, not a multitude. He's not one of many. He is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. What is he saying here in these verses? He knows that they would be transitioning from slavery and wandering to settle down in a land flowing with milk and honey, fruitfulness, and they were not extremely, if they were not extremely careful and diligent, they would become distracted by the prosperity and riches of their new life. And number two, they would forget to accurately and diligently teach the next generation who God is, what He has done, and how to know Him. Incidentally, that's the three things you want to write down. This isn't on the slides here, but, but three things that we as parents need to do for our kids and that you, as you have an opportunity to pour into somebody else's life, in discipleship, we want to talk about discipleship, which is really the big theme behind Titus, not just in the family, but in the body of Christ. What does discipleship look like? Simply put, if you want to teach people about God, here's what is in this passage, the Shema, and here's what God commands us to be teaching. He commands us to teach people... Who he is. I'm the Lord. I have a name. I'm one God, doctrinally. This is who I am. Who he is. What he has done. Delivered you from slavery. I've delivered you from us. I've provided for you. I've created the world. You're accountable to me. I've done all these things. So who he is, what he has done, and how to know him. You come by grace through faith. Boldly you can come to the throne through the blood of Christ Christ. How do you, what does God require of us, and how can we know Him personally is the third piece of that. Who God is, what He has done, and how can we know Him is the most important thing we can teach our kids. It's the most important thing. If you fail at teaching your kids anything else, you've got to teach your kids those three things. Who God is, what He has done, and what does He require of us? How do we know Him rightly? There's... A multitude of things, four things I want to highlight for you in this passage um, this morning. The first thing is to live with the end in sight. Live with the end in sight. The end is, as I mentioned a moment ago, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses was less concerned. Interestingly, think about this. Moses was far less concerned about them becoming atheists than he was about them becoming idolaters. the, The biggest problem in our world is not atheism. The biggest problem in our world, it would be idolatry, and the chief among those guilty would be professing Christians that worship many gods and yet profess one. That they're running after many false saviors to sustain them, to give them hope, to give them peace, to, to, to draw their identity from, and yet really, they, they say they're all about Jesus, but the reality is, is many times our lives don't look like Jesus is the center, and in. The smartest people to to pick that up is our kids. They see that. They can see the dichotomy, the division between what we profess and what we live on Sunday and what we live the rest of the week. They they know that. They see that. And so live with the end in sight. God is much more concerned with idolatry and people being his people being distracted by wealth and prosperity and security and false gods. What is the win for your kids? God, uh, you you might say, well, it's it's good grades. There's lots of activities, having the right friends, having the right school, having the right sports, the right grades, the right college, the right job, the right spouse. Those are all good goals. But what do they really matter most? I mean, have the end in sight. What matters most is that they understand that the Lord is our, our God, our family's God, our church is God. He is our God. He is one. The most important thing, we have to know him and what he has done and how to know him. Rather, that's the most important thing we can teach our children. You know, it's possible to gain the world and lose your soul. And I think sometimes as parents, we, we tee our kids up for that, kind of, that, that, that tragic ending because we don't live with the end in sight. The defined win for me is that my kids know Jesus. They know his ways and they know how to know God through Christ and that he alone is their righteousness. And whatever else God does with their lives, I look forward to seeing how he uses them, how he works, what he does. But that's, if, not, if they, in the world's eyes, are complete abject failures, but they succeed in that area, praise Jesus. Because 100 years from now, the only thing that's going to matter is their personal relationship with Jesus. That's what I want to live for. Live with the end in sight. Second thing, fight for their heart. Fight for the heart. He says, "The Lord our God, the Lord is one." And then he goes on to say, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength. The, love the Lord. Love the Lord." This is really interesting. The one thing that separates a living, vibrant faith from dead ritualism and cultural religiosity, which is this this region is 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 Full of religious people that are that have you know great orthodoxy, but are dead spiritually. And the one thing that separates is is love. It's love. Jesus would take these same words fifteen hundred years later from the Shema when he's asked, "What is the greatest commandment?" If you could take all the commands in the Bible and you could boil them down, what would be the greatest one to you? What are the things that God said, "Do this." that you think would be the best. And you know what Jesus' answer was? You, you know, He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love God. That's the greatest thing you can do. All the commandments flow from that. In fact, the first four of the ten commandments flow from that. The first and foremost, what God calls us to do is to make sure our heart is centered. We don't want to be Pharisees, that we are obedient. We follow the list. We do the things God tells us to do, but, but the heart is not there, Right? That's not the win. Fight for the heart. Many parents are trying to pass down rules and values to their kids disconnected from a vibrant, living, loving relationship with Jesus. Rules, values, and truths apart from love will lead to dead religion. Many parents try to win the head arguments and not the heart gospel change, transformation. The goal is, for parents is not behavior modification the win for us is not that we get our kids to do the right thing that's not the win because they have a heart that is dead and is desperately wicked the greatest win for our kids is that they have a heart transplant heart transformation that god would remove their heart of stone and would give them a heart of flesh This has been a debate through the years and through the ages, and there's most of the parenting books you'll find, even in a Christian bookstore, are from a Pelagian mindset that says that the way you act and the things you do and the environment you are is is the most important thing, that kids are born basically good, and and the environments that they're in um, have to do with what they're going to turn out to be. And so the goal in good parenting is to make your kids but give them the best environment and help them steer them along so they make right choices. Always put before them good choices, bad choices. Help them to make the good, right moral decisions and that's the win of parenting. And that is demonic, false truth. I need Jesus. And my righteousness, my actions are filthy rags on my best day. And so are yours and so are your kids. Your kids' greatest need is to be confronted with the law and the Word of God in a loving, gracious way and understand that, you know what, you'll never live up. You're, you're never going to be good. At, you're never going to obey your parents perfectly. You're never going to do this. You're never going to do that. You're never gonna, and, and, and so instead of getting mad and saying, well, I just give up, or trying harder and being a Pharisee, you need Jesus to change your heart. So repent the fact that you don't measure up. and Put your trust in, trust in Jesus, and He will change you, and He will transform you. You need a heart transplant. You don't need moralism. And yet we take the law of God. You remember from weeks ago, there's a two by four that had the, the law on one side and the other side, we flip it over and it was a measuring stick. And a lot of times we take the, the law and we use it as a stick to beat people into submission rather than as a measuring stick to say, you know what? You, you don't measure up. That's the purpose of the law is to tell you you're not good enough. You need Jesus to be different. You need Jesus to be transformed and changed. In fact, many kids rebel from their parents because their faith has been divided and not lived out in authenticity and it's been disconnected from love, a loving relationship with Christ. It's been traded for ritualism and rules. The third thing that this leads into is make it personal. Make it personal. He says in verse 6, And these words which I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. To be on your heart they need to be on your heart you cannot effectively teach that which you do not live parents jesus followers grandparents singles wherever you're at you can't effectively teach to other people that which you do not effectively live and so that this does not mean that you have to be 100 percent obedient or you cannot teach your children that's not what i'm saying Remember, the law, the point of the law is to point us to our need for Jesus. The most important thing you can give your kids is an accurate view of what it is, what it's like for the gospel of Jesus to change and transform you. Let me give you some thoughts. The the church and the home display the gospel most clearly, not in their perfection, but as the grace and the love and the power of Jesus transforms them. Jesus is, is most visible, not in your perfection, but in, your, in the process you being changed. Jesus is most visible, not in you being perfect, but you being in process. As he's changing you, that's where other people go, man, he's changing you, transforming you. I, I see that you're, you, make, you make mistakes and you mess up, but then you turn to Jesus to, to forgive you and to give you hope and to help you. And uh, you've changed a lot. I've been watching you, and you've changed the way you handle this or handle that. Important thoughts. Uh, what if the greatest win for parenting wasn't giving our kids our perfect examples? How many of you guys uh, grew up with parents that were, you know, do as I say, or, or you may be your, your neighbor's parents probably wouldn't want to indict your parents, but do as I say, not as I do. You grew up with that mentality around you. Okay, do as I say, not as I do. Here's what I require of you. Here's what I expect of you. Here's what, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what you ought to do. This is what you. And, and for that matter, your parents were never wrong. Even when they're wrong, they were not wrong. Okay, they refused to admit that they were wrong. That's not good parenting. What if the greatest win for parenting wasn't giving our kids our perfect examples, but a front row seat to God's grace and goodness working out in our lives? What if the wind was to say, hey, why don't you pull up a chair to our lives? I want you to, to see. You, you see me all the time. You know, look, I, yeah, I preach on Sundays, and, and I tell people about the Word of God, but you know as good as anybody that I haven't arrived. I have anger management issues at times. I get frustrated. I get impatient. I get, you know, you know that. And so, so yeah, you need to deal with the issues in your life. But look, Jesus is transforming your dad, too. And let me tell you, I, listen, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I shouldn't have handled this that way. I was wrong. And then I need God's help to help me change. I need God's grace to help me change. I need Jesus to make me different in this area or that area. But you need Jesus to help you and change you too. I can tell you how many times my kids have said to me, I pray for God to change me, buddy, but He's just not changing me. Or um, He's just, this isn't happening, or that's not happening, or I ask God not to make me, you know, to, to help me to remember to make my bed and I just can't remember to make my bed, or whatever the issue is. You know, and, and and what they don't realize is is depending on where they're at in their spiritual journey, all I, the win for me is that they constantly are growing in their awareness and their need for Jesus. And then one day it's going to click, and they're going to go, "You know what? I really need to follow Christ." And their awareness of their bad is going to be so big that they're going to go, "Man, I have no hope in my own righteousness, but to put my faith and trust in Jesus." And where else are they going to see that except? hopefully, in their mom and dad. we, we got 3,000 hours a year to spend with them. Surely, if we would live this way, that they had a front row seat to God's grace and goodness working on our lives, that would make a difference. How do we think our kids will see their need for Jesus if we have no need for Jesus, if we've arrived and we're just doing the ritual, we're just doing the stuff, we're just jumping through the hoops? What, how, how's that going to ever help them? It's Not going to help them. So make it personal. Let them see Jesus... Changing and transforming you in your life. That, that He is, not just that you understand that the Lord your God, the Lord is one, but that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and that these words that He has commanded you are on your heart daily. And the last thing He says is, diligently teach these things to your children. last point is, restore the rhythms. Restore the rhythms in your life. One of the ways that they did this in the, in, to this day is they have provided um, mezuzahs in their homes. And so they it says that you t- take the law of God and you're to put it on the doorpost. And so um, years ago, I picked up, I got this little mezuzah. And if you are to go to Israel to this day, every hotel in, in Israel is going to have a mezuzah on the door of every room. Every home of every Jewish family is going to have a mezuzah. And inside it is a little tiny copy of... Deuteronomy 6 and of the law, written in Hebrew. Can we read it for you? Shema, oh, Israel. That's all I know. Uh, the law of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, written. And they're to hide this thing on their hearts. They're to place it on their doorposts. Interestingly enough, by God's uh, grace, when we bought the house that we're in now, uh, he got provided, and that's a whole other story of his provision in our lives but he provided in his perfect timing perfect house for us and and one of the things that was so cool about it uh was that on the doorpost there was of all things a mezuzah not this one but another one this little metal box was still on there so the first night that we spent in the house i went and i got the screwdriver and we took it off the wall and we got it out and we sat on the doorsteps of our house and we opened it up and i showed them the law And I read Deuteronomy 6, and we talked about as a family how this is the way we need to be. We need to love the Lord your God. God has blessed us with a wonderful house, but this is not God. It's just a blessing. It's a temporary thing. It's a tent for us to dwell in temporarily until he leads us to wherever he leads us and to whatever other thing in our lives. But ultimately, he's calling our family to live for him. And so the rhythms of life that we want to live, there's four rhythms that he presents in this passage. And I want to give you an illustration. This is Reggie Joyner in a book called Think Orange, laid this out beautifully. And so I'm uh, taking his language because I think it's so practical. But he says, diligently teach it to your children as you talk to them when they sit in the house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Four things. Diligently teaching your children as you sit in the house, as you walk down the way, as you lie down, and when you rise up. And so here's four ways to do this. The first time is, is mealtime. That's when you sit in the way. When you're sitting in the house. And, and that correlates to our families, would probably be more most realistically, mealtime or playtime, hanging out the house, mealtime. And this is a time to have formal discussion formal discussion, and to help you think in terms of, and I don't want you to be obsessed with the chart, and did I, was I did teacher today, or was I coach? What am I supposed to be doing in this season of? But just, just understand, in the natural rhythms of life, have some meals together. In fact, it's more important that you have family meals together as to your kids walking with Jesus long-term than whether they're in whatever the latest sport is and a different thing. If you're running your kids 90 to nothing and in 50 different directions, and you never eat together as a family, okay, you're wasting some valuable time. But nonetheless, formal discussion as a teacher. And this is an opportunity, the goal in this segment, think of it as this is a great opportunity to establish and to instill values into my kids. Instill values. The second thing he says is uh, is when you walk by the way. Now, most of us aren't walking by the way anymore. We generally drive places. And so we go everywhere. We don't generally walk, we drive. And when we drive, this is a great time, drive time, for informal dialogue. And so, so parents, think in terms of putting the friend hat on here. Okay, this would be a good time to be the friend, help them interpret life, help them deal with the challenges they're working through and the things that they're talking about and whatever it is that they're, and whatever their age is, there's going to be its unique challenges. I remember um, Lily, who's uh, eight now, but when she was probably four years old, coming out of Sunday school one Sunday, not here, the church we were at, um, the church sent us, and she was talking about how such and such kid was, was mean to her. Well, what did she do? Well, she did this, said this, and she said she wasn't going to be my friend anymore, and she doesn't like me, and she told me, you know, she said some mean things. And so this was an opportunity for informal dialogue and to be a friend and to help her interpret life. Yeah, Lily, sometimes people are going to mean, mean to you. Did you punch her? Because when a girl does that, man, I'm telling me tell you what you do. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't do that. Don't do the first punch, but you better finish the fight. I, I didn't tell her. But it's an opportunity to help them interpret life. And it's like, you know what, like it, it, people are mean to us. Not, not everybody treats us the way they ought to. Probably doing that because she, she was hurt by somebody else in that day, and here's why she did that. And, and so, you know, and we, we help her work through that and so that she can find that friendship and, and have a healthier way. So this is informal dialogue. Third is bedtime. Bedtime. Uh, this is a great moment for, for intimate conversation, to be a counselor, to build um, closeness and intimacy with your kids. Crawl up in their bed and get down with them and pray with them and tell me about the day. Tell me about the challenges. Tell me about the. Pour out your heart. There's just something about that time at night, and the, each kid is vastly different. Okay, but uh, I, I know with um, one of my kids. So yeah, so she's six, and and late night when Greta's tired. Boy, she is a emotional basket case. She just you know it was a in fact uh, Dave Fields. Was teaching one Sunday um, back here, and, and, and Greta was sick, and she missed it. So, this is an example. And so, she comes home, or that, that night, we're laying down in bed. That night, actually, it was like a week or two later. She's like, I'm so upset because I missed that Sunday that Mr. David was teaching, and he'll probably never teach in the kids' area again, and I'm never going to be able to hear him again, and it's this one that I had to miss, and blah, blah, And I'm like, honey, you just need to go to sleep. I'm telling you, it will be better in the morning. Go to sleep. But she was all upset because Mr. David was all... But her heart is just... She just bears her heart as wide open at night. And that's the way with all of her kids. It's a great time to be a counselor, to build intimacy. And then the fourth thing is morning time. Time for encouragement. Now, I don't know if your house is like my house, but generally, particularly if you you need to get out of the house, it's very difficult to be encouraging in the morning, is it not? You know, I mean, I encourage my kids with, would you get your shoes on and your jacket and get whatever and get out of the house, you know? It's tough to be encouraging in the morning, but nonetheless fight nonetheless, fight to be encouraging in the morning, to be the coach to instill purpose, what your goals for today, what are you' going to do? What are you going to accomplish? What are you going to help them? Coach them along. Help them think about how to let Jesus be the center of their life through the day. So these are formatively, but here's the bottom line in all of these. Interject into all of these. I want you to see this whole grid through the lens of who is God. What has He done? How can they know Him more deeply? When we talk about establishing values, interpreting life, building intimacy, instilling purpose, all of them are seen through the grid of having the end in sight. Who is God? What has He done? How has He shown His faithfulness? What does He require of you? How do you live for His glory? Putting those three values before them is the way that we live Our lives. Remember, the only thing that matters 100 years from now is going to be our kids' relationship with Jesus and our relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray by Your grace that You would help us help one another. But I do not know of a person in this room that would say that they have arrived in this. They got it figured out. Man, they got parenting nailed down. I I am chief among sinners in being a perfect parent. And so, Father, I'm thankful for these, this grid that you have given us, that, we, that you have given us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, a great plan, that of all the things you could say in a farewell speech through Moses to your people, of all the things he could say is to remind them that there, there is one God. They need to love him. and They need to know him. Love him with everything that is in them, with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and, and, and that they need to diligently entrust this to their children. To their children's children, their children's children's children. God, I pray for whatever the season of life that we are at in this room. I realize we're not all in the season of parenting. Whatever season, would you show us how we can live this out in our lives? Would you show us how we can apply this to others in the body of Christ that we could be pouring into and looking for formative, um, encouraging ways to, to point other folks to Christ? That we would come beside other families and grandkids and other people. Maybe, maybe. Young singles that come beside families to to learn these things, to help them do this. And God, to the degree that all of us would say we have failed, Lord, we repent. We thank you for Jesus who forgives us, who restores us. Lord, I thank you that you modeled, uh, your father modeled perfect fatherhood to us. And you modeled. Perfect Son, Lord, I want to pray that you would just work in our hearts and lives as we give back to you, as we worship you through songs. We reflect upon these things and hide these truths in our hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray and we worship.